Our scripture for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves especially to the Lord, then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace to you. Now as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this grace. I am not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now I am giving an opinion on this because it is profitable for you, who a year ago began not only to do something but also to desire it. But now finish the task as well that just as there was eagerness to desire it, so there may also be a completion from what you have. For if the eagerness is there, it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so their abundance may also become available for our need, so there may be equality. As it has been written, the person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that you would meet us in the word this morning. God, that you would show us how to live, that you would give us hope, and grace to actually live as you've called us to live. And that ultimately, God, that we would glorify Jesus and serve others with this grace that you've given us. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated if you haven't. Yeah. What does it mean to do justice? As a church family, what does it mean to, to do justice, to pursue the just and merciful works of the Lord. This is what we've been exploring. This is what we continue to explore. Uh, as we talk about putting the, the biblical theology of justice into practice, we recognize and we are, we are walking through four actions, uh, four ingredients, sorry, four, five actions, five ingredients, five things that doing justice requires. Last week we spoke of radical empathy, and here's the thing is radical empathy, radical love does not stand on its own. It doesn't stop there. You don't simply feel empathy. That's not what empathy does. You don't simply feel love. That's not what love does. Love moves. Empathy moves into action. And so this week we're going to talk about the first part of that action. It's generosity. What does it mean to be generous? And how does generosity apply or, or 
relate to justice. If you're like me, and you've gone to a church, and they start talking about generosity, the pastor's about to talk about tithing, right? But we're not today. We could, but we're not. So if you're like, oh, here comes the generous tithing talk, like, chill, we're good. But there is a link. We are talking about generosity, and that will overflow into various facets of your life. Right? And so while it's like, yeah, no, don't worry, chill, we're not talking about that. We are talking about what does it mean to give and to give and to give and to give. And Paul sets us in this text. Paul gives us what, what I think is just the most phenomenal encouragement towards generosity that you will ever hear in the church. And so what I want us to do is just to break down what generosity is, is rooted in, what, what it's motivated by, and what it moves towards. And I think as we do that, right, as we, this is kind of out of order for me because usually I would end with the motivated by. But, but I want us to see that pattern as Paul gives it to us so that we can begin to see why generosity is, is not just something, there's not two topics, right, justice and generosity. But, but as uh, uh, Keller would, would say and wrote a book called, right, there's generous justice. Justice is by its own nature generous. It must be. And so we're going to look at what it means to be generous. So, so first of all, let's just look, as, let's hop in the text and let's see this, that radical generosity, biblical generosity, generous justice is rooted in the notion of human dignity. We've been talking about this. If we had the, if we had the definition of biblical justice up on the screen, uh, which we won't, you would see that, that it says that everyone is treated with the dignity becoming of the imago Dei. And we intentionally use that, that antiquated Latin term, right, partially because Latin is so back right now, I'm just... But because it perfectly conveys what we're talking about. The imago Dei, the image of God. Uh, if you were to read like the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, so the Latin translation of the Bible, and you were to go to Genesis 1, 26, you would see that we were created male and female in the image of God. We image God. Now there's a lot going on with that. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, the first thing that we see is that, that um, <clears throat> if you're created in the image of God, it's because God considers you a child, like a son or a daughter, right? He's not, like, dis dismissing you in that sense. Like, you're so childish. No, he considers you as one of his children, dearly loved children. And that's how the Bible starts, Genesis 1, image of God. We see in Genesis 5 that it says that Seth was born and made in the likeness and the image of Adam. Seth is Adam's son, and he's created in Adam's image. And so we get this idea, this picture of what God is saying, what, what Scripture is saying, what Genesis 1 is telling us when it says that male and female alike, all humanity is created in the image of God. It means that there is dignity befitting a person simply because they are children of the living God. 
And that dignity is not contingent upon their belief in the living God. Their dignity is not contingent upon their obedience to the living God. Their dignity is not contingent upon their relationship with any other human being or human person in the world. It is simply innate because they bear the image of God. This human dignity, this, this imago Dei is so critical for us, but, but it means something even more. And this is, this is what's interesting is that God creates man and woman after his own image, and then he tells them, now get busy, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And what happens when a man and a woman are fruitful and multiply, right? We'll, we got, we'll keep it the very surface level, right? Because we got kids in here. But what happens? There's more, there's more people. There are more image bearers, right? And if you were to stay in a city and somehow not worry about gene pool stuff, but you were to stay in one city, right, and you were to have people continuing to be fruitful and multiply, the city would go from not very, very lightly densely populated to very densely populated, right? Because more people take up more space. And when you think about that in the context of God's massive world creation, what God's goal is, is that the earth be filled with image bearers. And then in that sense, what, what humanity does is image forth the glory, the creative love, the redemptive love of God. Do you recognize that apart, as a part of what you are called to do? You are called to image forth God's glory by imaging forth his creative and his redemptive and his relational love. And that... Now, the measure to which you do that, Scripture does say, corresponds to how, how you follow him. You can more rightly image God or you can wrongly image God. So, for example, racism wrongly images God. But forgiveness rightly images God. And so in those moments when you forgive those who have wronged you, you are imaging God more clearly than you did or would be by not forgiving. Do you see this? Like, do you see, like, human dignity is both innate and it's in action. And so we come to this text and we see that Paul, Paul is operating out of that assumption. And I love how he does it because he doesn't start his conversation on generosity by focusing on the rich. When I say rich, I mean monetarily affluent. The rich. Where does he start his conversations? He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given where? Among the churches of Macedonia. But then he tells us about those churches in Macedonia. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and... Their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, this is phenomenal because in this culture, when we talk about generosity, I'm looking at you rich folks. How do you know generosity? Oh, well, uh, J.K. Rowling, and 
I love, like, don't get me wrong, but, right, like, when we talk about generosity, we say, well, J.K. Rowling was a billionaire, and she's the only person in human history to no longer be a billionaire because of how much she's given. I want you to hear how amazing that is. Like, that's no knock, but that's how we think about and talk about generosity. And what secretly happens, what's, what's subtly caught and taught, is that generosity is the act of somebody who has particularly affluence and therefore ontological supremacy. They're, they are better, they're up here, they have giving to those who don't have money. And, and quietly what, what's caught and taught is that J.K. Rowling is somehow more godlike even than the people that she's giving money to. This is why things like like <clears throat> service fatigue, where, where people get frustrated serving people. They're like, we go there over and over again and we don't see any change. And therefore, we're going to stop serving. And that happens a lot. You see it in suburban churches that want to do urban ministry. They come in and the urban doesn't change. And what they really think, though, is the urban isn't imaging the suburban. So what's our work even for? And what's happened? They've said, we are the thing that ought to be imaged by you. We do that all the time. And when we center generosity simply around those who are affluent, that is the danger that we run into. And so I, am, I love that Paul says, no, human dignity belongs to all, and all have something with which to be generous, because he says in the midst of their affliction, they had an abundance of joy and extreme poverty. And in that still, they had a wealth of generosity. And so Paul says in this moment, what Paul does for the church in Corinth, who, by the way, are rich. It's part of why he's writing this. Is he says, look at your brothers and sisters in Macedonia. They have nothing by your standards. But they have an overabundance of joy. And they have a wealth of generosity among them. And so we begin to see that radical generosity is not rooted in what you have. It's not rooted in your monetary means. Radical generosity, generosity in general, is not rooted in your perception of what generosity is. It's not rooted in your kindness or your charity or, or even your bravery in giving of your money. That's not what radical generosity is rooted in. And that while at the end of the day, Paul's going to say, so give money to this people, right? Like what he's showing them is that generosity extends beyond beyond money, which means that even if you don't have money, you have something to offer. And even if you do have money, you have something that you lack. And now, all of a sudden, Paul lowers the mountain that is affluent. And he raises the valley that is poverty. And he says, no, you all are equally dignified in your humanity and therefore equally capable of generosity. And it makes me think of the work, uh, it's, it's uh, Brian Thicker, it's, it's, it's called uh, When Helping Hurts. 
And in this book, When Helping Hurts, he's talking about how sometimes our acts, the acts of particularly people in the West, but, but affluent people, the acts of people trying to serve the poor end up hurting the poor more and also hurting those who are trying to serve the poor because of the ways that we think about need, the way that we think about poverty, and the way that we think it needs to be addressed. Functionally, as a, a Western culture, we believe whether you're capitalist or communist, you believe this, that that the primary problem with the world is material. That's what both capitalism and communism believe. They're flip sides of the same coin in some regards, in that regard. The problem of the world is material and therefore the solution of the world is how you handle those material goods. So if you're a capitalist, you say the solution is free markets and free people distributing the goods freely and, and trading freely. And as that happens, equity will sort of pan out because everybody has the same desire and it's just a matter of deregulating material. Now, some of you are like super libertarians and you're like, that was a horrible way to describe it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm saying more or less. But then on the other side, on the socialist side, you get this notion that the problem is material and it's an inequitable distribution of material goods. And therefore, what will bring about goodness, the vision of goodness for the world, comes when that material, those materials are redistributed evenly across all people. And if we can do that, if we can just have equal distribution of material goods to all people, or if we can just have totally free markets, then goodness will come. Material problem, material solution. The only problem with that is that human history, as well as all theology and philosophy, seems to point all the way against that. Because we have nature and we have unpredictable feelings and actions and, and no market is free enough to free the human soul from the bondage of selfishness and sin and brokenness. And no, no redistribution will redistribute, will redistribute the lust for power in a human's heart. So no matter how great a system we set up, there we are, human, again, <laughs> breaking it. So that means the, that, and, and look, this isn't to say don't be capitalist or don't be communist. Do whatever you do. Do you. We're not having an economic conversation here, per se. What we're saying, though, is that the problem is rooted deeper than that. And unless we move past the material into the spiritual, interpersonal love deficit that we have, then we will not begin to engage rightly with poverty. We will say that the poverty is simply poverty of material goods. What I love about the book, When Helping Hurts, is that he points out that there are way more poverties than that because of the brokenness of humanity, because of sin, right? He's not saying your sin. He's saying the notion of sin, the brokenness of the world. 
And so he says there's, there, that poverty is, in essence, broken relationships. I love that. Poverty is broken relationships. And so poverty, like when it comes to like affluence and money, monetary or material poverty, it's because we have a broken relationship with other people and with the world. And they come into play and we abuse and we oppress and we, we delineate between peoples. Like that's not just the poverty of money, that's a poverty of relationship. But then there's spiritual poverty. There's a poverty of, of, of being that comes from not knowing yourself and not knowing your maker. There's a poverty, as we'll see in this text, a poverty of joy that is some sort of combination of all of them, right? Like th that poverty of joy is probably a product of looking at the world realistically without being shaped by the gospel. And so we see there are all these different forms of poverty, which means no matter where we are, we find ourselves impoverished in some way and in need of another. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the Corinthians had money, the Macedonians didn't. And so the Macedonians were in need of money. But then what we find is that the Corinthians were in need of joy. And, and he says it here. He says, um, <clears throat> and in this matter, I give my judgment that benefits you. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Right here, verse, verse uh, 14. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need. Why? So that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be equality. I love it. I love it. What he says is you give them money. And they'll give you joy. And what you'll begin to find is that you needed that joy just as much, if not more. And so he affirms their dignity by affirming that they have something to offer the Corinthian church that the Corinthian church desperately needs. And so generosity is no longer a one-way street. It, it, it is rooted in human dignity. And so then as you see that human dignity, then you ask, all right, so then if, if we all have need, that's the motivation, right? Right? Like, I need to get something back from you. Reciprocity is the motivation, right? That doesn't seem very Christian at all, does it? And it's interesting that, that Paul does not root their motivation in that reciprocal giving. What he's doing is showing that they are worthy of your generosity because they are your human family and that you will be surprised. So he's not rooting their motivation in getting something back. He's saying you give, and what's amazing is that they're giving out of the abundance of what they have too, right? But he does root motivation in it. And I love this, because y'all know Paul, Paul's an apostle, right? Right, like we live in an interesting era in the church, and we have for quite some time. Uh, men, like me, who stand in front of churches like you wield obscene amounts of power. And nobody seems to question this. And they often use that power to abuse and to hurt. It happens so often. Some of you, I know for a fact, are sitting in this church weary from men like me. 
And just as an aside, like, I'm, I'm sorry. If you've been wounded by the church, I just want to take this time and say, I am sorry. Those wounds are real, and you need as much time as you need. And the Lord is with you in that wounding. He is. But moving back in. It's because of that, though, that if I were to stand up here and to say, I am your pastor, or da-da-da, you do this because I command you, it wouldn't go over too well. Some places it might. They'd be like, okay, well, the pastor says, but right? Like, it wouldn't go over too well here. And I think what's interesting is I'm just, I'm just Sean. Like, I'm not, like, I, I'm just me. This is Paul. Like, rode to Damascus, saw Jesus, was blinded, Paul, right? Like, wanted to, like, bit by a snake and shook it off, Paul, right? Like, this, this is a, this is, Paul's that dude, like, wrote a lot of the New Testament, Paul. And what I think is really interesting is that he says in verse 8, his, his, his means of motivating them is not a command. I say this not as a command, Paul does not choose to obligate the people to give and to be generous. Rather, he chooses to share with them the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And so if if radical generosity is rooted in human dignity, it is motivated by the gospel. And, And just hear me on this. Christian generosity, radical Christian generosity is not compulsory. It's not mandatory. And it's not commanded. It was not demanded of the believer, and yet Paul, and all the apostles for that matter, had this notion that if you knew the gospel, you would be compelled to a new kind of generosity. This is what's amazing about the gospel, is that it doesn't demand that of you, and then at the same time it demands so much more. The Christian faith does not require giving alms. You don't have to give alms. To be in. In fact, in the Christian faith, it's probably best not to think about it as in. But that's another story for another time, right? But you don't have to give alms. However, a complete understanding of the gospel will compel you to give your life. That may be money. That may be joy. That may be service. That may be time. It may be all of the above. It probably is. What's amazing is that in Acts, there, there's, um, <clears throat> oh, man, help me out. They were, they were killed for the, the giving. I can't believe that I didn't. Ananias and Sapphira? That's right? Yeah? That's what I was thinking, but, no. Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, you, you know that story in Acts, like they, they, they sell their house, they keep portion of it, they give the rest to the apostles, and they're like, we gave you all of this, and God's like, they're lying. And then the apostle calls him back and is like, hey, you guys are lying, and then they die. <laughs> it's a crazy story. I don't even have time to unpack that. But what's amazing to me is that when God talks to them, through the, when, when, they, when they're corrected, it's not, it's not that they didn't give everything. What Peter says to them is, y'all didn't have to give anything. You could have given whatever you wanted. But for some reason, you felt like you had to lie about what you were giving. Do you hear that? You didn't have to give anything. 
You weren't, com- you weren't obligated. But even they understood that there was this thing happening in the church because of Jesus, where it says everybody gave what they had and nobody owned possessions, but they shared everything among them, and each gave as they had and received as they had need. There was this new community forming where people were giving everything that they had. They were compelled to give their lives, and and they weren't under order, and it's because of what Paul says. He says, I don't command you, but then one of the most amazing verses, and this applies to everything about how to live the Christian life. It's not compulsion. It's not law. It's gospel. It's understanding the gospel. And he says, for you know, here comes the gospel moment, right? It's kind of like a, uh, while drinking your juice in the hood, was that, don't be a menace to South Central. You've seen that movie, while drinking your juice in the message, like here comes the gospel message, right? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so what does he do? He preaches the gospel applied to the idea of giving. Jesus was rich. Like, rich like y'all don't understand. Like cattle on a thousand hills, rich. And it doesn't say that Jesus, though he was rich, gave some of his stuff, gave 10%, so that you might, because 10% of what God has is enough. That's not the, the, that's not the Jesus model. He says, though he was rich, he made himself poor. How poor? Philippians 2 emptied himself in the form of a man, the likeness of men, and then not only that, but a servant, and then not only that, died a death on the cross, ashamed and cursed. That type of poverty, that's gospel poverty that Jesus puts himself in, though he was rich, that you who were poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul roots his call. Paul roots his hope that the Corinthian church will give generously in the gospel. You have a Christ who has given all of his riches so that you might have riches. He's made himself poor. And so the inference is now you go and do the same. How can you not, is what Paul says. If you you know this gospel, if it motivates you, then you will be generous. If you are not generous, then the key is not to like discipline yourself to generosity. If you're not generous, the key isn't to give to some 501c3 online, so that it happens recurringly. Do that if you want, but that's not the cure to your lack of generosity. The cure to your lack of generosity is rehearsing the gospel that Christ who is rich made himself poor for you. Then all of a sudden it's not compulsion, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable act of worship and following and imaging forth a generous God generous with his time, generous with his resources, generous with his love and his joy and his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. Are you that generous with your mercy? Do you see? Do you see that? The gospel 
compels you to a deeper generosity than a pastor standing up here saying, give 10% to the general fund, or to a pastor standing up here and saying, every Saturday we're going to go to the, the soup kitchen and you better be there. Pastoral authority has nothing on gospel compulsion. But then he says, and this is, this is the last thing, the generosity is towards a future hope. And see, if, if the gospel doesn't motivate you enough, this future hope of generosity ought to, because that future hope is equality. I love that he uses that word. He says, <clears throat> uh, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. All right, let, let, let me go back. For I do not mean that others should be eased and, your burden, and you burdened. Right? So he's not saying... This is a one-way street, even though if it were, that would be enough. He is saying, but that as a matter of fairness or equality, as a matter of equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be equality. Equality. Equality is at the heart of justice. We ha I have these conversations all the time, and people are like, well, what do you mean by justice? Just equality? It's like, and in a sense, yes, equality. <laughs> that is justice. And Paul is, Paul is not, and, and even if you want to, like, make some sort of technical linguistic argument against that, what you cannot deny is that equality appears to be a central aim for Paul. Paul. Like that Paul. Like 1 Timothy 2, Paul seems to be really concerned, or for, yeah, 1 Timothy 5, right? Seems to be really concerned with equality. And he says radical generosity moves towards equality. Because when you have an abundance of somebody and of something and somebody else does not, then there's not equality. And while we're not here to argue about markets versus da-da-da-da-da, right, like this isn't compulsion, this isn't obligatory redistribution, this is gospel-believing recognition of giving what you have out of your abundance for the sake of those who do not have, understanding that you lack, and they will fill you up. And all of a sudden, we have people who are having their needs met who are abundant in joy, who are abounding in love, who are equal. It's equality. It's justice. As a church, we cannot pursue justice if we are not radically generous, obscenely generous. And we can be generous because of the gospel, and this is the very last word on this, is simply this. Because the gospel tells us something else then. If it's true that Christ who is rich made himself poor, so that you who are poor might be in his poverty made to have abundance, what that means is that in Christ Jesus, you have abundantly more than you could ever hope or dream or need. Which means there is nothing, nothing, do you hear me? Nothing that this world can take from you or that you can willingly give up that you do not have in Christ Jesus. It means if you have Jesus, you are free to lose. You're free to give. You're free to serve. 
You're free to be family. Isn't that what family does? Like, it's amazing how, like, on the drop of, like, family. Like, I don't know family means something different for everybody because you may have different family. But, like, if right now, like, just last minute I had to run to Orlando, right, I could knock on family and be like, hey, I need a place to stay, and I also need, like, $50 for, for a ticket home, like a bus ticket home. And there would be no questions. Be, how do we scramble up $50? That's family. Likewise, church, family. Like we as a church are a family, but then we as humanity are a family, which means that same generosity applies. And we can do it because we have more than enough in Christ Jesus. Right? Y'all believe that, right? You believe that you serve the God who fed 5,000 with the little scraps that a kid had. Right? That's the same God that will abundantly supply our needs and our desires and our hopes as we walk in the gospel. Let's pray.